For Avamital, the sense of mission wasn't established with certitude, and I'm the one, and I was chosen because I'm special. He walked away without the feelings of shame and guilt, but without that large-headedness that can come from feeling that you have a mission. That's something that struck us a lot at a personal level. The second issue at a personal level is that he had a very acute sense of how delicate the surviving Jewish people were. I think we live in a different era. We feel very triumphant. We feel very secure. Thank God our country is hopefully, hopefully stable enough to withstand pandemics, foreign enemies. But he was living in the shadow of the Holocaust. And for him, the state of Israel still seemed very feeble and insecure. And of course, it reflected the age and the era he lived through. And there was almost an anxiety as to whether Israel could survive in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And it came about in different moments. He used to tell us about the prevalent mood of the Six-Day War, on the eve of the Six-Day War. And we look back at our history, and it's just so overwhelming and so miraculous, and the Jews are conquered. But in the weeks before the Six-Day War, remember, this is 23, 22 years after the Holocaust, people feared a continuation of the Holocaust. General Nasser threatened to throw the Jews into the sea. And the Jews in Israel had that sense that this is the conclusion, or it could be, the conclusion of the Holocaust. And Rav Amital conveyed to us how infirm and insecure people felt in that period before the Six-Day War. Fast forward about six years, and now it's the Yom Kippur War, and the boys from Gush leave the base medrash to go to the battlefield, Matzah Yom Kippur, Eight of them didn't return, and Aramital went around eulogizing his eight princes. There's an article, Shemona Nesichei Adam, and he, he, he says as follows in one of his lectures. He gave a lot of lectures in that period around the Yom Kippur War and the Six-Day War, and that's where he really came out and became a national figure. It is difficult for mortal lips to mention numbers. The number is great, eight, mighty and cruel. It is cruel sevenfold when we remember that these are losses to a nation of survivors of the sword. He's quoting Yimya, Am Sari Decharev. We all know the song, Ko Amar Hashem, Am Sari Decharev. So we have the sense that the Jewish people were in Am Sari Decharev, and that on top of this very feeble and fragile reality, eight boys had to be taken from him and from his yeshiva. I think it also led a lot to what I would call um, political pragmatism and practicality or conservatism. Let me just read a quote, and then I'll get to the conservative nature of his politics. The fear has not yet completely passed. Our generations, he's writing, of course, in the 90s or I think in the 80s, our generation still lacks a sense of stability and the assurance of our survival. I don't think these words are as resonant to us today as they were to him. Somewhere in our hearts, there still flickers the fear of a different political constellation, the fear of unexpected developments in the mentality of the enemy and his military preparedness. Rav Amitav was a conservative, and his conservatism, very protective and very, and I think so what made him so successful, because he was such an ideologue and such a creative thinker, and he thought so out of the box, but he was very grounded and very cautious and always took two steps forward, one step back, and to be careful that we can protect all the accomplishments and the gains. Rav Lichtenstein was a conservative without having really endured the suffering. I think Rav Lichtenstein was a conservative by nature. Rav Amital was conservative because of the scars of the Holocaust. And because of that, and I think it affected his politics, and it tilted him towards 
a political standpoint that wasn't based on the triumphalism and the confidence and the optimism that we can conquer all of our enemies. We don't though in any way accommodate their political platforms, but it's the one who's trying to protect the Sri Dechar, of trying to protect the Nisharim Ibn Yaakov, those who have remained after the Holocaust and have lived through this nightmare, and let's just stabilize the little we have. So he wrote, a Jew who lived through the Holocaust, this is a quote from him, a Jew who has lived through five wars, the War of Independence, the Sinai Campaign, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, the Lebanon War, may be forgiven for fearing yet another war. So this is written in the 80s, and in the 80s, his politics became much more well-known, and certainly in the constellation of religious Zionist political position, he was seen as someone who was leftist, or was at least willing to consider a peace proposal in those days, which at least had meaning today. Obviously, most of us feel like there's no partner to speak with. But So this is how the Holocaust impacted Rav Amital on a personal level. It created this conservatism, practical politics, he lived in the shadow of that almost nightmare, and of course, it changed his name. Okay, the, the primary part of tonight's year is not how it affected him personally, but how it affected his relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and how he helped us, through the lenses of his experience, build a solid relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Let me begin with the famous statement of Rabbeinu Bachaye. Rabbeinu Bachi Ibn Pakuda, a Talmud of the Ramban, a well-known Jewish philosopher, in his well-known classic book called Chovas Halivavos, identifies gratitude to Hashem as the core of religious identity. If you're searching for the primary ingredient of religious identity, gratitude to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, think, for example, of the end of the Brach of Modem, Al Chayenu HaMesirim Biyadecha, V'yal Nishmosina B'Kudas Lach, V'yal Nisecha Shebuchal Yomimano, V'yal Niflo Asecha V'tov Asecha Shebuchal Eis, Erev Avokir V'Tzarayim. The gratitude we feel, Moda Ani Lefanecha, Nekavim Nekavim Chalulim Chalulim, certain brachos which just are saturated with gratitude. And Rebbeinu B'chaye encouraged his readers to see that as the pedestal, Hakara Satov. Rav Amital felt that in the post-Holocaust era, you couldn't build a religious structure on gratitude. It was just too difficult to grapple with the tragedy, and it would be dishonest, and the Rebbeinu doesn't want dishonesty. So you can mouth to yourself that you're grateful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and I'm sure some people were, but it can't be the core. Now, I want to say something here, and I'll, I'll say this a lot tonight. I think that maybe 20, 30 years later, I think we can return to a more gratitude-based religious identity, because we have Baruch Hashem received so much from HaKadosh Baruch Hu as a people over the last 70, 80 years, but certainly in 1960, 1970. So listen to Rav Amital describing the danger of basing religion on gratitude. More than a few modern rabbis and preachers have continued to espouse the idea of gratitude, he says, as a basis for worshiping God. Such, for example, is Rabbi Dessler's approach in the years preceding the Shoah. The question is, understandably, after the awesome devastation of the Jewish people in the Holocaust, how, if at all, can we still talk about our worship of God being based on gratitude or recognition of God's grace? Now, he isn't discussing this theologically. Of course we know that a Kodesh Baruch Hu has plans and designs that we can't crack and can't decipher. He's discussing this emotionally, existentially, but I can't feel it. If I feel the devastation and the horror and the nightmare, how can I then make believe that I feel gratitude that I, that I have a hard time summoning? 
And it speaks to Rav Amital's authenticity. And it speaks to the fact that Hashem wants us to be authentic, even if we uncover voices in our hearts that aren't classic and pious and pietudinous. And it also speaks to the fact that Rav Amital was very busy trying to recreate religion in a new generation. He was trying to recreate the yeshiva world in a post-Holocaust generation. If you want, for example, to just more or less look at the two yeshiva worlds today, the classic Haredi world and the Dati Lumi world, the Haredi world tries very hard to preserve the pre-war world in dress and attitude and language and orientation. And, and Rav Amital was, his basic claim was, you know, want to keep the, the basic kernel, the Torah, the mitzvahs, the traditionalism, but certain ideas have to change. And one of those ideas were not to mouth gratitude when it's, you have a hard time summoning it. So what should replace gratitude as the core binder to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as, as the core religious identity marker? So I'm going to share a screen again. It was a Pasuk that Rav Amital, and ironically Rav Lichtenstein, not so ironically, would quote often for us. It's a Pasuk in Eov, not surprisingly, in which Eov says, and it's a very harsh Pasuk, Eov Parak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Tesvav, Hain Yiktaleni, even if you murder me. Now here's a play on words. Lo is how it's written, Lamet Aleph, but we read it, Lo Ayachel. Even if you murder me, lo ayachel, I will wait for you. I will bind to you. You can't get rid of me. Now, of course, the play on words says, I won't wait for you, but I will wait for you. And there's a Gemara that talks about different interpretations of this Pasuk. But the classic interpretation is, lo ayachel means you can't get rid of me. I'm committed to you. Our love is deeper than whatever happens. The only fate worse than a Holocaust is being severed from you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And no matter what happens, I'm faithful. I'm with you. Think about your faithfulness and loyalty and your relationships to your spouses, to your parents, to the people you love. At a certain point, the relationship generates enough tensility and strength that it can withstand, and it should withstand, fissures and ruptures. Oh, okay, I've got to, uh, got to change something here. Okay. Um, okay. Someone wants to uh, annotate. So we have a Zoom bomber. We have someone who wants to join and direct the share. So he thought that he could, uh, we control the final part that no, no one can annotate the share. So I apologize. I'm going to stop the share and share it again. So this way, hopefully the, right, will come up without any, right, okay. So it comes up without any doodling on the screen. So that was the first theological transition of Ravamital. That let's find some new emotional basis, some new identification for Avodah Hashem in a world in which it may be difficult to feel authentic gratitude, or at least to have that be the dominant. Obviously, we feel gratitude to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for creating the nace that allowed us to escape the Holocaust, for delivering the state of Israel. We'll talk about that later. But to say that that's the core, and I think they felt it was dishonest. The second issue that I think was altered theologically was how we see HaKadosh Baruch Hu in history, how we interpret history. Let me take a step back. In our search for the Rabboni Shalom, we want to find him, in everything. Now, in some areas, it's easier to find him. It's easier to find the Kaddish Baruch Hu. So if we study the Rabboni Shalom's word, his Torah, it's pretty easy to find him. If we study his mitzvos, we can discover his nature, his intellect, his will. If we study his morality and we try to carve our own moral images in his image, we can understand him. We can detect him. But we want to discover the Rabboni Shalom not just in his will and his essence, 
but also in his creation. So we look outside at a river, at a mountain, at an ocean, and we can sense HaKadosh Baruch in his creation in the world of nature. I think we're all becoming more sensitive to the Rabboni Shalom's inner workings in the world of nature. Now that nature, or at least the human part of nature, feels a bit dysfunctional, we have a greater appreciation of when it functions properly. But we're not discovering HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not in his word or his law or his morality or in his world that he created, but in the unfolding of human history, in the human sphere, politics, human events, the flow of history, certainly at a macro level. At a micro level, people have Bechir HaChavshis. But at a macro level, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is directing and choreographing a certain arc of history. Zechor Yimau Salam, Binu Dar Vador. We want to try to understand history. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu descended in Mitzrayim, he didn't just intervene in nature or in psychology or in the Nile River. He intervened in the political process in Egypt. There was a civil war that erupted the night of Etzias Mitzrayim that HaKadosh Baruch Hu fomented as part of the destabilizing of the uh, Egyptian uh, political hierarchy to release the Jewish people. So we all feel that we can discover HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not just in his word and his law and in the world around us, but in the unfolding of human events, something we call history. And we, I don't know who's listening to this year, but those of us who believe that we're living in a very transformative time of history and that 1948 is a shift in history and that history has become reawakened, the Jewish historical relevance has been restored and that we're in our homeland. So those who find themselves drawn to those ideas have even greater appetite to interpret history and have even greater appetite to employ prophecy as the lenses through which we can interpret history. So we read the prophecies that seem to have been dormant for 2,000 years, and now these prophecies resonate with new meaning. And we try to interpret them and to find our Kaddish Baruch Hu in history. And that's our calling, and I think it's a religious calling. And then what happens when you hit a roadblock such as the Holocaust? And the Holocaust doesn't offer easy answers. If you're prone to find our Kaddish Baruch Hu in history, and you're honest, and you don't fall back on what I find inappropriate and even offensive answers, you're stuck. And Rav Amital's message to us was, it's all right to be stuck. The Holocaust is too large. There aren't answers. It's beyond human comprehension. I remember my first feeling as an individual when I traveled to Poland, I'd read about the Holocaust and seen the video, they're just so much larger. It was I, I couldn't wrap my head around the volume of people and communities and the expanse. My mind had shrunk it into, I parsed it into bite-sized segments that I could process. And all of a sudden, it was, it was so large. It was overwhelming for me. So Rav Amitav refused easy answers. And I want to read some of his quotes. Excuse me. I want to read some of his quotes. He says as follows. The grappling and the searching, that is my problem. Although I know that I'm not capable of reaching a final conclusion, but I search incessantly. What did God want of us? Where have I failed? What can I do? And this was a theme that repeated itself in so many of his sichot. There is no answer. It's a roadblock. And we'll talk about the impact of this roadblock. What does it mean to hit a roadblock in your historical deciphering? What are some of the answers that typically people offer? The Rav Amital whisked away. Whenever, whenever he thought something was empty, he would raise his index finger and he would say, Shtuyot, Shtuyot, maybe if you, know, if you knew him, so you're probably smiling now because that was his, one of his calling cards. They stoyeld, stoyeld, and he just wipe it away. Some people want to claim that the Holocaust was a punishment. 
again, it's offensive to our notion of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's mercy and offensive to our notion of Mida Keneged Mida to assume that any sin can be so large as to justify a disaster of this magnitude. How can you even articulate that? And some have. Ramitao refused that. Another popular approach, ironically adopted by many religious Zionist thinkers, students of Rav Kook, we'll talk about Rav Kook a bit later, wasn't a punishment, it was a surgery. The only way to sever the Jews in their comfortable lodging in Europe was to shock them and to amputate and to surgically remove them and any surgery, there's going to be collateral damage. Marlintal was, wasn't buying that one. He didn't feel particularly drawn to that one. Let me read you what he said. In the past, there were those who claimed that the Holocaust was a sort of price that the Jewish people had to pay in order that the Jewish state could be established. There were those who claimed that the state of Israel is a divine compensation for the destruction of the Holocaust. Compensation, price. Even those who claimed that the Shoah was the only way, or at least in practical terms, became the impetus to compel the Jews of Europe to immigrate to the land of Israel. So Ravitel is raising all these words that he's going to reject, punishment, price, compensation, means, impetus. These, he says, are all very difficult, very difficult claims, approaches that I find hard to countenance at all. So here's the roadblock to what I call visioning, to try to vision the world the history of humanity in religious terms and find a Kodesh Baruch Hu and develop a roadmap for where we're heading. And, and I think it's the part of the year that probably resonates the most deeply because I think we've all been visioning the last two months. We've all been thinking, what are the messages that Corona is sending us? What is the Kodesh Baruch Hu sending us? How should we change our lives? Where is this heading? How is this landing? We will try to. I, I've been one of, the, one of the greatest perpetrators for that crime. So before I get to how this affected historical visioning, how does it affect your relationship with the Kodesh Baruch Hu? And so many people lost their emunah and their bonus shalom. So Rav Amital developed a very novel idea. It's not, it's not the only one, obviously, but it certainly was something which was very resonant in his thinking, that you could sense a Kodesh Baruch Hu during the Holocaust precisely because it was so unfathomable and precisely because it was so beyond. And part two is sometimes you can sense Hashem's presence without knowing the answers. In our minds, because we work cognitively with people that we can understand, comprehend, communicate with, we sense presence of people and phenomena that we can understand. When we can't understand something, we tend to push it aside. But our whole orientation with the Kodesh Baruch Hu is meant to be very different. And of course the Kodesh Baruch Hu is, is the quintessential unfathomable and, and inscrutable. And the Holocaust is, is just part of this. So let me read his words. This is a bit of a longer quote, but it's, just, it, it's really at the core of his relationship with Hashem to the Holocaust. What took place there is so unfathomable, so abnormal, incomprehensible to any logical thought, such that I could see in it only something metaphysical, some sort of the hand of God. It cannot be grasped by any logical thought. What happened there was beyond proportion. The term proportion has no place here. It was so incomprehensible, so abnormal. And I saw God's hand clearly, but I did not understand what the hand meant. To me, that's the the line. I saw God's hand clearly, 
but I didn't understand what the hand meant. I was confounded, and I remained confounded. I clearly experienced the hand of God during the Holocaust, only I did not understand its meaning. We saw the hand of God. We saw God's word. But what he was saying, we didn't. Or at another point, in some conversation with a secular Jew, in the 60s, I think, on television or radio, he was asked, where was your God during the Holocaust? And Rav Amital gave a very simple answer, and I think I've heard it quoted by other people, but I heard it in the name of Rav Amital. He said, he was with us in Auschwitz. He was with us in Auschwitz, and we just maybe didn't understand his hand. So he avoids any simplistic, maybe even morally offensive solutions. He senses HaKadosh Baruch Hu in Holocaust, in Auschwitz. The unfathomability is precisely the hand of Hashem. But this creates a bit of a sobering effect on historical visioning. Either you ignore the Holocaust and you're just off on your merry way interpreting historical events and not grappling with the Holocaust, or you offer what he feels to be morally offensive solutions to the Holocaust. But if not, then you're caught. And that means that you have to have a little bit of intellectual humility when you vision history. You try to pursue Hashem, you generate a general sense of a Kodesh Baruch Hu's presence, but the confidence and the precision to know this is exactly what's happening in history. And this Pasuk reflects this event, and this person is Achashverosh, and this person is Haman, and this person is Daniel. And rather than getting a general sense of our Tanakh, of our Masara, of how to interpret events, and Rabbi Tal interpreted events throughout his life, but there was a caution and a, a almost an intellectual humility when trying to interpret these events. So I remember when I was in yeshiva, 86, one of my times in yeshiva, there was a terrible, um, there was a terrible, I'm just trying to keep my notes here. Right, there was a terrible accident in Petah Tikva. And a school bus was caught on the train tracks and many, many children were killed. I think it was 15 children. And of course, we've seen this before. The fanatical, self-appointed prophets of God know exactly why disaster strikes, know exactly why Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, and exactly why the tsunami affected Japan, and exactly why we're suffering a pandemic, and who's to blame. And at that point, some leading rabbis blamed the city of Petah Tikva, which was going through a whole decision whether to keep the movie theaters open on Shabbos in the late 80s. So they know exactly how to decipher history. So Rav Amital writes, Certain groups and certain rabbinical authorities presume to provide an explanation for every tragedy and disaster. They know how to answer, for example, why a certain number of children were killed in an accident. Many times they attribute this to the sins of others. Now, let's ignore the moral disgust and repulsion of dancing with people's blood. He's talking more theologically now. But of course, we would all recoil at the notion of accusing people during times of crisis and tragedy. But from a theological standpoint, Rav Amitav, let us imagine, Rav Amitav writes, if we asked one of those rabbis who were able to decipher this tragedy, you have before you two scenarios. Here, a million and a half children were killed. 
and here 10. Now explain this. You won't explain the 10. How are you going to explain the million and a half children? What would you say? I have an answer for this 10, but not for the million and a half? So it created a certain humility, almost hesitation to be too specific, too confident in knowing the ways of God. And I think that our community, the religious Zionist community, has become very, very confident knowing exactly what God is planning for us because we've been beneficiaries of so much of his grace. And Avamita always muted some of that confidence for us. Some people listening to this are old enough to remember the withdrawal from Aza, and at least a statement that was attributed to some Rabbanim. And again, some people say it was misunderstood, but it's only a statement that was understood by a lot of younger teenagers during that time as a confidence boost, as a guarantee it won't happen. Hashem will not allow this to happen. And then we all woke up one day and it happened. And many young adults who are now in their late 20s, early 30s, mid-30s, lost their faith. And they attribute the loss of their faith, they do, to that moment that they were guaranteed it won't happen, and then it happened. And I remember Rav Amital speaking and saying, how could anyone 70 years after the Holocaust issue such guarantees? If HaKadosh Baruch Hu can allow a Holocaust to happen, then he can certainly allow 6,000 Jews or whatever to be replanted by their government. It's not a political statement. It's just a theological questioning of limits to our confidence. So the historical visioning continued, but it was very cautious and very muted and very humble. And Ravonitel continued that. And I'm, I see myself as a disciple of Mrs. Talmud. And I, I try to do that as well. But it's very subtle and balanced and, and nuanced rather than large sweeping. Remember, I once, uh, I once I spoke to a son of mine who was in the army a couple of years ago, and he was serving with boys from another yeshiva, another Hezder yeshiva, or another Dati Lomi yeshiva. And that yeshiva is much more influenced by people who are much more confident in their historical decoding. So I spoke with him, and he said that a Rebbe from the other yeshiva, there was a group from his yeshiva, which is a yeshiva similar to Gush, it's the Yucham Hezder yeshiva, and then there were some boys from another yeshiva. And the Rebbe from the boys from the other yeshiva that they were serving with came to spend Shabbos in the base. Very nice, very, very, uh, very generous to spend Shabbos in the base. And I asked my son, well, how were the Divrei Torah? He said, very interesting, Abba, they were very political. I said, well, I would also try to decipher politics and see where, I don't mean, petty politics of who's the government and Netanyahu and guns. I just mean the political stream, the motion of humanity, the, the, the human condition. And um, I said, well, that, that makes sense. He said, no, Abba, they were very, very political because <laughs> it was Purim time. And Trump was Achashverosh. And this one was Haman. And this one was Harvona. And uh, it was an attempt to literally fasten every single Pasuk to every single event in a micro-analytical fashion. I, I was a little bit shocked that people had such confidence being able to read the tea leaves of history. So that's how it shaped him um, in his historical visioning. Of course, the elephant in this Zoom room is how did it shape not just historical visioning in general, Corona crisis, politics, World War II, culture, modernity, which he spoke a lot about. But how did it shape the following three words? 
Reshet Smichat Gulatena. Here you go. Here's a roadblock. How could it be Reshet Smichat Gulatenu after the Holocaust? Especially if you're not willing to draw those easy solutions that I mentioned before. I'll still get to Howard Amital explain the juxtaposition between the Holocaust and the state of Israel. But if you're not willing to say it's a punishment and a purging before redemption or a price or a surgery, well, it's the, if, if redemption started during the World Zionist Congress, a Balfour Declaration, or <laughs> how could you have a Holocaust? And this was why Rav Amital felt that you couldn't clip and paste Rav Cook in a post-Holocaust era. Because Rav Cook didn't live through the Holocaust. And it's probably one of the major divides between what people today call the Kavnik group of Rav Cook Talmudim and more of a Gushnik approach. Do you simply assume that Rav Cook's positions of the 20s and 30s or 10 can extend even though an event of this magnitude occurred? And of course, the second event is that, which is outside the parameters of this year, is that Rav Cook saw a world of, in which he didn't see a material, materialistic world. He saw an ideological world of secular Jews who had ideologies of freedom and morality and, and communism. So, okay, these Jews will one day be from because they're ideologues. So we have a very ideological world. We just have to turn it in the right calibration. Rav Cook didn't see our world of internet and materialism. That's not the world he saw. So a lot of his statements about secular Jews, a lot of his statements about where this is all heading and how quickly it's heading, may have to be redistributed, or at least a different timeline, different chronology. And Rav Amital, I'm not going to bore you with fine-tuning declarations of Reshet Svicha Gulatein, but he always talked about it, and there was always a different trend, there was always a different formulation. He never stepped down from it, but he was always muting it and trying to lower expectations. Let me read one of the quotes. We cannot insert the establishment of the state of Israel into any biblical verse, except for those that speak of the return to Zion. In the beginning of the redemption, there is no promise that all will be okay. The students of the Vilna Gon spoke of the beginning of redemption. Revelio Gutmacher spoke of the beginning of redemption. Our teacher, Rabbi Cook, spoke of the beginning of redemption. And after all that came the Holocaust. And he spent a lot of time, and, and this is something which I think is very resonant in the Corona world, saying that Gedolim can make mistakes. And he spent a lot of time talking about Rabbi Akiva and the mistake he made in acknowledging Bar Kochba as a Messiah. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who according to many people, made a mistake by bartering Yerushalayim for Yavna. A leader doesn't have to be flawless, doesn't have to be impeccable. He can make mistakes. Now, in terms of the theology, not just how we assess leadership, obviously he didn't just, as I said before, a clip and paste of Cook, but also it created a practical messianism. Messianists are very dangerous people. Because if we're living in a different era, well, out the window with morality, out the window with practical concerns, we can just guarantee Hashem. We're living in the Messianic era. We're just a hip scopping, hip, uh, hip, uh, hips, uh, jumping, uh, 
Hipscott's going to jump away from the end of days. Remember, about 20 years ago, I was interviewed by the New York Times, 2015. And they said, what do you think about those settlers of Hebron? The correspondent asked me, he said, well, I'm a settler. He said, no, 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 those settlers who carry guns. In those days, I carried a newsie because I was on patrol duty. So no, no, those settlers who carry guns, who believe that every centimeter of this land belongs to them. He said, I'm a settler who's a messianist who believes that every part of this land belongs to us. She said, but you feel different. You seem different. What's different about your messianism? So I explained to her that I'm a messianist. But just because we're living in a messianic era doesn't mean that it's immediate or doesn't mean it's going to be a smooth ride or doesn't mean that we can guarantee HaKadosh Baruch Hu's response I, and speak in those terms, obviously. And therefore, I proceed in the Messianic era with the same tools of engagement and rules of engagement as I used in the pre-Messianic era, namely morality, halacha, politics, diplomacy. So I'm heading for the same endpoint, but I'm not severing myself from the past. And as Messianic era, we don't have to think logically and politically because we're just with a different trajectory, different frequency. And it was very, very grounded Messianism. There was never an abdication of that belief that we're in a messianic ark. And I'll talk about what Rav Amital saw in the state of Israel in a few moments. But it was grounded, and that's why his politics were very different than people whose politics were riveted on, well, this is messianic era. We don't have to calculate and evaluate all the political considerations. And also, it was a messianism that was very sturdy and durable. A lot of people lost their appetite with the phrase, after Oslo. A lot of people lost their appetite for after Armona. A lot of people lost their appetite after we withdrew from Oslo because they're expecting a meteoric surge uninterrupted with triumph after triumph without any lag, without any withdrawal, without any defeat. And for Ramital, one thing is assured it's a messianic event. When we'll get there, how we'll get there, how quickly, we don't know. So it didn't just dampen or mute his historical visioning in general, but particularly gave him a very grounded and realistic and even minimized sense of Rashid Smichas Gulasena. But the irony is it was minimized, but it was very durable because it was minimized. It wasn't as ambitious and it wasn't as surpassing as other people's claims about Rashid Smichas Gulasena. So, so far I've talked about theologically two issues. One is displacing gratitude with commitment in building relationship with Hashem. Number two, the roadblock of the Holocaust affecting, first of all, recoiling at simplistic, morally offensive answers, accepting Hashem's unfathomable hand in the Holocaust, being mature and responsible about historical visioning. What did he see? in the relationship between the state of Israel and the Holocaust. He rejected those easy solutions and its surgery and its punishment, but the connection was obvious to him. In a very cute way of explaining the connection, he once wrote, if the world were to be destroyed, heaven forbid, in a nuclear Holocaust, and the historians of the future were to attempt to recreate the events of our times, they would discover archaeological artifacts testifying on the one hand to the Holocaust in Europe, on the other hand, the state of Israel, its wars and its world status. There could be no doubt that these archaeologists would conclude that these events took place in different eras. How could you imagine 
the Holocaust and the state of Israel five years apart or three years apart with a distance of hundreds of years between them, they would assume. But in fact, this all happened to us in our generation in the space of 30 years. So he sensed, here's the word, a connection. He didn't sense a solution or a price or justification, but there's a connection. And what was that connection? So I want to discuss two issues. Number one, he was very sensitive to the Holocaust as a healing. I should really use that word healing twice. Healing for the Jewish people and healing for the presence of Hashem in our world. Again, it wasn't as accelerated as it's the beginning and it's coming and it wasn't as much looking forward as much as it was looking in the present. What would have happened to the Jewish people in the wake of the Holocaust materially, physically, and psychologically without the state of Israel. It just it allowed the Jewish people to resettle themselves and regain their composure and regain their confidence. And I want to read some of his statements. We certainly see in the state of Israel a process of healing. Cannot imagine what would have happened to the Jewish people had it not been for the establishment of the state. How vital it was for the psychological rehabilitation of the survivors. If these people had to continue moving from one shore to the next, not finding a place of refuge, what would have happened to the Jewish people? From this point of view, there's certainly a connection. I heard the proclamation of the state, but those were words. How was it expressed? We heard, he quoted a Pasuk in Tehillim, Moshev Yechidim Baisa, just a home. Holocaust refugees had drifted at sea for months, seeking a home, a modest private domain wasn't a single nation in the world willing to give them a home of even four, four amos. They experienced homelessness. They experienced a feeling of homelessness. Um, my notes are a little bit out of order here. One second. Okay. I'll stop here. And I'll stop. I'll stop this section. So it was the home, the freedom, the security. It was a healing for refugees. A very, very grounded and more minimal form. And it was also a healing for the presence of Hashem in our world. And I heard him say this so often, it, it haunts my imagination. That the Holocaust wasn't just an assault on the Jewish people, but it was an assault on the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in our world. It was the darkest period for Hashem Shechina. It was the single greatest Chilol Hashem since the Chorben Beis HaMikdash. And it's something that Rav Amital haunted me with, that my life and the life of the Jewish people is a gloss to Hashem's presence in this world. And as the Jewish people rise, Hashem's presence rises. As we fall and fail, Hashem's presence disappears. And our lives are lives of Kiddush Hashem in creating the tangible presence of the Rebbe Shalom in our world. And as the state of Israel, Baruch Hashem, has succeeded, Hashem is more present in our world. And 1945 was the darkest moment for Hashem's presence in our world. And there was a healing of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence. I just want to share a personal anecdote, a personal story that brought this home to me. I remember about 15, 20, no, about 20 years ago, there was a, the, the, there was a, the, the Polish army had asked the Israeli Air Force to participate in war games in the city of Radan. A few weeks earlier, there was planning going on for a Holocaust commemoration, the liberation of Auschwitz. And the Israeli army had asked to fly a battalion of planes over Auschwitz to mark the moment. And the Polish government had originally said no, it originally rejected because Auschwitz is a cultural center, you can't introduce weapons. But now the Polish army wanted the Jewish Air Force to participate in war games with the Polish Air Force. 
So the squadron leader of the Jewish team, who was a smarty, whose family wasn't imperiled by the Holocaust, conditioned, he said, was adamant. Israeli jets will only fly in the skies of Verdun as part of this training mission in war games if they first fly over Auschwitz. And of course, the Polish parliament buckled. And I remember listening to the radio. There's no internet those days. At least the internet wasn't carrying listening to the radio reports that there was a convocation of Jewish leaders and flags of Israel hoisted above those train tracks that had witnessed such horror, singing Atikva, and the squadron leader pulled his team into formation and announced over the loudspeaker as or over the radio, Gicha achat, Gicha in Hebrew means a flight, Gicha achat avor Am Yisrael, one flight for the Jewish people, Gicha achat avor Eretz Yisrael, one flight for the land of Israel, Gicha achat avor Korbanot HaShoah, one flight for Holocaust survivor or victims. And it just, it hit me, I said, 50 years ago, how desperate were we for that one flight? How desperately did we plead with Eisenhower and with Roosevelt and with Churchill for one flight to bomb train tracks to Auschwitz? The skies of Europe were in complete Allied control. How many bombing missions were conducted over Europe during World War II? How many tons of dynamite and millions of Jewish lives weren't worth one uncontested bombing mission in 1945? And now it's 50 years later, we had our flight. We had our one flight. It's just the turnaround between the Chilol Hashem of not having a flight and the Kiddush Hashem of having a Jewish army and, and, and Jewish soldiers and a Jewish air force. It's just, oh, this is exactly where Valentine was referring to. And I remember Yechezkel Parachaf, which he employed to describe this to us. So that's the connection that he sends, healing, healing people, healing Hashem, not these large-scale models of what's happening in history, the Holocaust was very, very formative, very grounding for him. Okay, I want to briefly discuss how it affected his interaction with other Jews, but I want to summarize. We've talked about the personal infa- impact, the name change, the fear, the insecurity of living in the shadows of the Holocaust, which I think has probably dissipated for many of us. The theological question uh, of trying to find a baseline for our, religious, our relationship with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, the theological question of how to vision history, how to interpret how to feel Hashem when you can't decipher. We've all felt Hashem during the last couple of weeks. We don't know what his messages are to us, but we felt him over the last two months more deeply than I think we felt him in our previous lives. What, are, what does it mean? What are his expectations? What are his, we don't know, but that shouldn't prevent us from feeling his presence. And there's a connection in the Holocaust, but it's not the connection that can be simply explained. It's a connection... That's very, very basic. Healing people, providing home, providing liberty, providing freedom, providing sovereignty, and providing an augmented presence of a Kodesh Baruch Hu in this world. Number three, Jewish identity. How did the Holocaust, ironically, crystallize Jewish identity? So I want to discuss three issues of Jewish identity which Rav Amitel drew from the Holocaust. Number one, Jewish morality, which is such a basic issue for anyone that knows Rav Amital, what's the role of morality and natural morality, morality beyond halacha, not just to be from, but to be good. And so many stories, I don't have enough time, obviously, but those who knew him, and, and it, was, it was such a prominent part of his thought. Number two, us against the world. Number three, secular Jews. So here's a very, very difficult quote about number one. Listen to this quote. I think I have never recited the traditional blessing, with the same emotion as I did in the days when I saw myself amongst the family of the murdered. 
while on the other side, the entire world waited. If there was a single point of light in the Holocaust, it was this, that there were two camps. On one side, the camp of the murderers. On the other side, the camp of the murdered. Happy are we that we belong to the camp of the murdered. The heavens and earth can testify in our behalf. If the nation of Israel had been given the opportunity to reverse roles, the nation of Israel would have said that it's preferable to be among the murdered than among the murderers. This is a historical point of light that cannot be overshadowed. Now, of course, a lot of thoughts come flooding our mind. That's what makes the accusations of the state of Israel as a, as a Nazi state. <laughs> Obviously, we're all drawing a lot of associations. But it reaffirmed Jewish morality, that if this is something that humanity is capable of, and I, I wrote an article about this, I, I posted it, it's covered in various Jewish weeklies, that it demonstrated that all the accomplishments of 250 years of human convention, which Nazi Europe was really a climax of, of all industrialization, democracy, culture, science, thought, philosophy, art, it showed the limits of human achievement. That human beings, enlightened man, modern man, could still be capable of genocide or attempted genocide. But for Avamital, it reminded him that Jews would never perpetrate such an act. And of the cornerstone of Jewish identity, Jewish morality and kindness. That's number one. I'll be a little bit brief because I don't want this year to extend. I'm not even sure it can extend beyond an hour. Second of all, and I alluded to this before, we live in a period in which Jews are embraced by society and the state of Israel in particular has reached a certain degree of diplomatic acceptance and embrace. But he was looking to a very different, different period. The Holocaust and the isolation that Jews felt in the Holocaust pretty much extended to the state of Israel. We were just as isolated diplomatically. The terms were different, but it's not as if the world was lining up to throw a party for us, to support us. In the days when I saw myself, he writes, amongst the family of the murdered, while on the other side, the entire world belonged to the family of the murderers, whether they were active murderers or people who stood silently by while children were killed. This Teravamital drew two biblical personalities from Sefer Bracious into his world and threw him into our world. Who are the two biblical personalities in Sefer Bracious who feel alone? They're seminal characters. Jewish people start their history by feeling alone. Avraham Ivri, the entire world on one side, Avram on the other side, and Yaakov Avinu when he's alone that night when history is unfolding. Vayivasar Yaakov Levado, Vayavik Yishimo, and then there's a battle. And for Avamital, alone was, oh, I'm using my words now, was almost a symbol that history is recycling, that just as it started, it's ending. And just as our Avos face the world alone, we're facing the world alone, not in a standoffish way, not in a disrespectful way, but just understanding, rather than lamenting it and wailing it, accepting it as Jewish fate and Jewish history. Are you really speaking of a lesson, he writes? You want to ensure Jewish survival? What took place in the Holocaust was that we stood against the world, all the world on one side, Abraham the Hebrew, Avram the Ivory, and us on the other side. This basic situation continues to exist. Yaakov stands facing a hostile world on battles alone against Asaph, or Sarshal Asaph, who represents all the physical, brutal power in the world. If he had any friends, Yaakov, they were on the other side of the river. Yaakov is forced to fight alone. And he continues uh, for Kabbalistic connotations. 
So number one, Jewish identity is predicated on morality. We would never perpetrate a Holocaust. Number two, aloneness is woven into the fabric of Jewish history. And number three, of course, Jews in Germany were defined for the first time in 2,000 years as targets, not because of their religion, but because of their race. And we can't be worse. worse. We, We can't change that. What shall we say after the Holocaust? Are we permitted to condemn people who find it difficult to have faith after all the Holocaust did to Jewish souls? There was a time when the Jews were hated for being the bearers of Torah. As soon as the Jews stopped living according to his religion and accepted the religion of his Gentile surroundings, the hatred ceased. This is no longer true. Contemporary Jew hatred is racial, directed against people in whose veins Jewish blood flows, irrespective of whether they live by the Torah or have had themselves baptized. When Jew hatred is aimed at a person solely because he's a Jew, regardless of his opinions and actions, listen to this line. When Jew hatred is aimed at a person solely because he's a Jew, regardless of his opinions and actions, so should Avas Yisrael, love of fellow Jews, be directed at every Jew solely because he is a Jew, regardless of his opinions and actions. So for Avamitah, the Holocaust was a mandate for Avas Yisrael. It It was a game changer. It was the first time that Jews were persecuted, not because they didn't want to convert, because they had a different religion, because they kept mitzvahs, because of Mazah, because of Chalim, because of Tefillin, but because they were Jewish. And that changed the identity of a Jew. It became racial, not purely theological. So this is how it changed Jewish identity. It changed the fundamentals of morality, or reaffirmed the fundamentals of morality. It introduced an aloneness that Jews had, ironically. We're more alone in the modern period than we were when we were living amongst the Gentiles with some degree of interaction and protection. And secular Jews, even though they were no longer from, it was a very different version of bridging between secular religious Jews and Rav Kook. Rav Kook saw them as imminent reformees, imminent Balei Tshuva. Vamital never assumed that they were about to become Balei Tshuva. He just said that they're just part of our people and they're part of our destiny. And I think it's certainly something that's more reflected in our modern milieu. So there's a lot here. I hope I've been able to give you a, a bit of a fabric of what we all experienced as Talmidim during the years that he spoke. He typically spoke to us on Yom Atzmarot, Yom Yushalayim, and it sounds strange that I'm quoting so many of the Sichot for Yom Atzmarot and Yom Yushalayim, but that's how deeply impactful the Holocaust was. When he spoke about Israel, he spoke about the Holocaust. When he spoke about the state and sovereignty, he went back to the Holocaust. So I hope this has been able to help you better appreciate Rav Amitel. Again, just to summarize, it had a personal impact. It changed his theology, his relationship, but not changed, but it, it, it highlighted some theological aspects. And, of course, Jewish identity, morality, aloneness, and racial identification. Mirz Hashem, all the Karbanot HaShoah should be a male for Am for the world, then Hashem HaShem Aliyah, and this should really be a quick and immediate Geula for Am and Am should never know Khurban, even approximating what we went through during the Shoah. Thank you again, everyone, for joining. Thank you, Rav Terrigan. Thank you, Rav Terrigan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.